Good morning again, y'all. You know, if you're watching online or if you're sitting here, good morning, good morning. Um, we are going to, uh, before we jump into the message uh, today, we're going uh, to receive an offering. And, and you've heard us say many times standing here, either Richard or I said that you're giving your generosity. We've said that it fuels ministry or we've said that it fuels mission. And I said what our, what our mission was, helping people find their way back to God and grow. And so you're giving your generosity fuels that. Well, I want to tell you something that happened uh, Monday night, this last Monday night, um, really happened. <clears throat> we were out on the streets. And I know that I say sometimes up here we're out on the streets and I make an assumption that all of y'all know what that means when I say that we were out on the streets. But what I mean when I say that is uh, we've had a pretty vibrant homeless ministry in our church for about five and a half years called M2540, which stands for Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. And we're out, at least right now, we're out every Monday night in the homeless community in six or seven different locations. We go out in the community, in camps, wherever it may be, and we serve, you know, 140 meals, home-cooked meals and tents and sleeping bags and this and hygiene items and all this stuff. And we're loving on that community and we're serving that community, and we're bringing Jesus into that community because we say it all the time. It's not about the food. It's about Jesus. It's not about the tent. It's about Jesus. And do they need food? Of course. Do they need a tent? Of course. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. But that food, the tent, the, the toothbrush, the socks, the bug spray, whatever it is, it kind of gives us a right to talk about Jesus, to speak him into their lives. And so that happens every Monday night. Well, this last Monday night, we're at our first stop, which is 23rd Street and 2nd Avenue. Uh, it's a, it's a, next to a place called the Homeless Resource Network. And we're out at that stop. There's probably, I'm just going to guess, there's 15, 16, 17 volunteers from multiple different churches, which is super cool. We lead the charge, but there's people serving from all kind of different churches. And then there was probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 people that we were serving. And so uh, somebody gives a devotion at every location. There's a devotion, a Jesus-focused, Jesus-centric devotion given, um, short, but a devotion given, and then we serve the food. And so somebody gave the devotion at that stop, um, shared a very much uh, uh, Jesus-focused devotion, and, and then they're all kind of getting their food. And... This guy walked up to me I had not seen before, uh, kind of a skinny old guy with a beard, um, and he walked, a homeless guy, and he walked up and he said, thank you, pastor, for the word. And I said, thank you for being here. Thank you for your kind words, whatever. And then he walked off. Five minutes later, he walked back over there. He said, hey, I just want to let you know that um, this ministry really has made a different and difference and does make a difference every week in our community. He said, thank you for what you all all do. And I said, well, thank you again, man, for those words. And he walked off. <clears throat> Here he comes back about five minutes later. And he, and he goes, and it's kind of dark out there, right? But he, he, he kind of he goes like this. He said, I want you to give this to, uh, to a man that needs it. And I said, super cool. That's a homeless guy, right? He's given me, I thought it was a dollar bill. And he gave it to me. That's only happened a very small handful, of, like three or four times in six years, five and a half years. Well, I said, thank you so much. And he walked off, and as I was putting it in my pocket, it was a $20 bill. It wasn't a dollar bill. It was a $20 bill. Now, dude 
that's a lot of money. Like, that's a lot of money. So he gave it to me. He said, give it to a man that needs it. I said, fine. So 20 minutes later, we're leaving that location to go to our next location, and everybody kind of leaves. And as everybody kind of was leaving, there was one guy um, standing there against this brick wall, and he looked at me and said, hey, can we talk? I said, sure. And so my wife and the people that were in our car, they kind of went and got in the car, and, uh, and Lynn Ornstein stayed behind with me, and I'm talking to this guy, and uh, he's pretty distraught, tears rolling down his face, and, you know, typical thing that all of us say at some point in our lives probably, you just don't know what I've done. I've lived in sin. I'm no good. I don't deserve, I deserve to suffer. I don't deserve God's love. And I said, well, I said, but you can be forgiven. No, I can't. Yes, you can. You can, I said, he's, he's bigger than your sin. You can be forgiven. No, I can't. Yes, I can't. And I'm like, dude, we can do this till Jesus comes back. But you can be forgiven. It doesn't matter. Now, there are consequences of your sin on this planet. There are real consequences. But, they, but you can be forgiven. And there are eternal consequences to that forgiveness. Because I said, there'll be no pain. Those tears that are rolling down your face will go away. And you will live with him for eternity. He said, I don't deserve it. I deserve to suffer. And, and, and this went on for literally for 45 minutes. It was just us and Susan was up there in the car. Went on and on. And in the course of this conversation with him, um, he said to me, he said, and cascading tears, he said, you don't even know that two hours ago um, I was right up that road ready and willing and able to sell my body to this man that lives in that house for $20. And he started crying again. He said, I was going to sell my body to that man for 20 bucks. He said, for $20. He said, I don't have 10 cents in my pocket. For $20. He said $20 like four times, and I'm a little slow apparently. you know. And finally, the fourth time he said $20, I stuck my hand in my pocket, and I'm like, oh, wow, how cool is this? I said, I said, this dude, who I've never seen before, just gave me $20 and said, give it to the man that needs it. And I said, I know I'm not the smartest peanut in the bushel, but I think you're the man that he was talking about when he gave me the $20. It was the coolest, like, God, if I could have looked in the sky and seen the Lord's face, he'd have been winking. Like, and he's almost like he's saying, are you that ignorant? The guy had to say it four times before you realized kind of what I was doing here. So, Here's the, 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 the beginning of the rest of the story is this. We talked some more. He didn't want to take the 20. I'm like, bro, I'm going to drop it in the floor. Somebody's going to get it. And I said, he gave me that for you. Um, and so we're talking, and I said to him in the course of our conversation, probably multiple times, I said, man, number one principle, you cannot argue somebody into heaven. You cannot argue somebody into a saving relationship with Christ. You can present, talk, share, whatever, and so I'm not beating this guy over the head with a Bible, but I'm like, bro, you can be forgiven. I said, the devil will get in your head and say, you don't know what I've done is too bad, and he said that over and over, and I'm pretty sure that he had taken somebody's life at some point in his life. He had done time, but he was out, so he kept on with that stuff and that stuff and that stuff, and finally, uh, I had said in, in that conversation, I said, man, don't you let your, pillow, your head hit the pillow tonight. 
without at least considering saying yes to, to the Lord's offer of salvation. I said it three or four times. Don't let your head hit the pillow tonight. 45 minutes later, this guy got saved, and it was as real as the day. It was as real as I'm standing in front of you right now. Like I could, the heavens like almost opened up, and he got saved, and he, when his head hit the pillow, he was a believer. When he woke up that morning, he was not. He was blind when he woke up, and he could see when he went to bed that night. So it was the coolest thing. Our group had already gone to the next stop. In fact, they had finished the next stop, and they were at the third stop because it had been 45 minutes. And we get to that stop, and I'm like, this is just I got this is just the coolest thing that ever happened. And y'all, I'm telling Susan what happened, and she's texting me while I'm talking to the guy. Um, but we get to the third stop, and I, and I asked a lady named Ruth. I said, did you do, and I never ask them what they talk about when they do a devotion, but I said, Ruth, did you handle the devotions at the last two stops? And she said, yeah, at the first stop, which would have, she'd have been doing the devotion while I was talking to this guy, you know, a mile away. I said, I said, did you do the devotion? And she said, yeah, I did. And she never tells me what she talked about, but you know what she said? She said, I don't know why. She said, but I just told him over and over, don't let your head hit the pillow without saying yes. Y'all? Unbelievable. God is so sovereign. And he is moving all this stuff around and you walk from here to here, and you don't even know why you walk from here to here until maybe an hour later you're like, oh, oh, that's why I did that. If we're privileged enough to even know why that obedience and what came from it, it was just the coolest thing. So that's the ministry and the mission that the giving in our church fuels. That's why we exist. Let me say a prayer over, over this offering. You'll see on the screen different ways that you can give in our church, and you don't need me to, you can read. So <laughs> I will tell you Venmo is kind of cool that you can give now on Venmo. But Lord, thank you for the opportunity to give. Thank you that you allow us to be generous, that you, uh, that you spur us on to be generous, to give to your work, to your kingdom, to your mission, and to the ministries of this church. And thank you for people that will serve and volunteer in the ministries in our church with the singular focus of helping people find their way back to God. Lord, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to give to your kingdom. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. So y'all, we, we have been for several months in the, in the book of Romans, walking through Romans. We're going to take a detour today for two weeks. We'll be back into Romans on the 17th, if my calendar math is right. Uh, but for the next two weeks, y'all, we're going to have a conversation about money and giving and generosity and grace in the gospel. Money and giving and generosity and grace in the gospel. And next week's message is really going to be part two of today's message. And I've never really done this, that they're very much linked next week and this week's message. And so we could either do that or we could be here till about three o'clock. And I don't, I don't think y'all want to do that. So... If you're here today, if you're watching today, if you're here today, you must be here next week. And if you're not going to be here next week, you can leave. No, I'm kidding. You don't leave. But they are very much linked together, these two messages. And I want to give you a couple of caveats, a couple of prefaces to today. And this will really be a preface to next week as well. But I'm going to give you two or three things, caveats 
today, and, and, and number one is this, that there are different places in the New Testament, a few different places, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, goes out of his way to let the church, to let the people know, the people that he's ministering to, to let them know that he's not looking somehow to get financially well off by preaching the gospel of Christ. And I hope that that's clear in my life as well. I, I want to kind of in a, in a Paulish sort of way make that help maybe even make that clear that I'm not preaching the gospel, I'm not shepherding our church family to somehow get rich and, and be living in some mansion. We don't live, Sue and I don't live in a mansion. Y'all know where we live. You could about throw a rock at it right down the road and it's clearly it's not a mansion. So I want to make that clear and I don't want to, um, well, I want to tell you this. I, I, we want to really and we're trying to live a very simple kind of lifestyle, a lifestyle of basic giving, basic giving and to be freed up because we made lots of financial mistakes in our past. But, but to be freed up to give and give and give and give as much as the Lord would bless us uh, kind of with. You know, here's another caveat. And if you, some of you, you're watching online or, or visiting here and, you, and you, you're, you, this is your first time and you're thinking, ooh, I'm kind of sitting in on the family meeting like they're sitting around the dinner table and this is like for family. But here's the deal. I know that God is God. He's sovereign. He's got you here for a reason. And, and I don't know what the reason is, but it may be if you're part of another church family, it may be a time that he's going to work on your heart a little bit for you to examine your giving and your generosity in your home church. I don't know. You may not be a Christ follower a at all. You may not be part of any church. And he's, he may have gotten you here for, for a reason. Well, he definitely got you here for a reason. But that reason may be to say something to you today that would lead you to commit to him. And then, and then further to commit to a local church somewhere, here or somewhere else, I don't know. Another caveat that we talk about when we talk about giving in the church, and I know some of you may very immediately think this, well, I don't give to the church. I don't give to a church. I give to this ministry or that ministry or this cause or that, that charity. Let me say this, and I'm not going to talk much about this, but, and we're not going to dive into this issue very much, but here's the deal, y'all. There's a primacy in the text of the Bible of giving systematically and regularly to a local church. There is. You see that in Corinth. You see that all throughout the scriptures where there's a picture of unity among the people of God as they rally together and they're committed together in giving and serving each other. And as we give that way, hear this, we're working together for the spread of the gospel in the world. And that primarily happens through local churches. Clearly, it is not wrong to give to a charity or to give to a, a, another ministry or a parachurch uh, kind of ministry or whatever. Clearly, it's not wrong. But it's also crystal clear in the scriptures that there's a priority on giving and being part of a local fellowship and body of believers. The last caveat is this. And I know some of you may be thinking this, and if you, if you ain't thinking it right now, I promise you you've thought it before, and that is this. All these churches do is talk about money, 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 money. They just want all my money. Them churches trying to get in my pocket, and they waste the money. And all the, turn the TV on, and this preacher's talking about, give me $1,000, and a new Mercedes is going to show up in your driveway next week. It's money, money. That's all you church people ever talk about. Raise your hand if you've ever thought that. No, don't raise your hand. 
But we've all kind of, that thoughts run through our heads. I, I know it has. I know it has, but I want to say this. I hope and I pray that nothing I say today, nothing I say next week, and nothing that I've ever said before would ever fuel that way of thinking, that it would ever, would ever pour kerosene on kind of on that mindset. I hope that after next week, well, a little after today, but then after next week, that you, we will all come to see that this is not about money as much as it is about hearts. I want us to see how God's love can transform and change a human heart in a way that compels giving. Let me pray. Lord, we're diving into this issue of money and of, um, and of stuff-ism, and everybody's defenses go up. Lord, the truth is we confess that we are so blind. In the church, we're blind. In the culture, we're blind. So I pray, Lord, open up our eyes to see what you would have for us to see. Open up our ears to hear what it is that you would say to us today. Lord, be gracious to us by, by speaking to us now, giving us grace to understand and act in a way that you would have for us to act. Lord, let these next moments be this spiritual fork in the road for us, for our church family, for our families, for our lives that it might change lifestyles and habits within our church family. And Lord, it is only your spirit that can do this. And so we pray in absolute total dependence on your Holy Spirit in this moment in Jesus' name, amen. Look, I want to give you all some numbers. This is not a numbers message. I'm going to give you numbers for 60 seconds probably. The first is this, in our church family, and I don't believe we're unique, I know we're not, but in our church family, about 16%, and it may be 15 and it may be 17, but about 16% of the folks that give in our church provide about 80 or 85% of the budget. Now, I'm not looking at this person gives that and that. I'm talking just numbers. 16-ish percent provide about 80, 85% of the budget. Nationally, for professing Christians and I'm being gracious in this too, 5% tithe. Well, what is tithe? Well, I give to the church. That's not a tithe. It might be, but the fact that somebody gives to the church doesn't mean that gift is a tithe. A tithe is a, is a 10%. That's what it means. It's a 10% of your income to the church. That's what a tithe is. So nationally, about 5% tithe. And 80, of, of professing Christians, I'm not just talking about Americans. I'm talking about people who would profess name the name of Christ, that they're a born-again believer, 5% tithe. 80% of professing Christians give 2% of their income. 80% of professing Christians give 2% of their income. The average professing Christian, and this is in 2019, give 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, the worst economic times the planet's ever seen, that number was 3.3%. So three, more people gave, more believers gave to their churches during the Great Depression than gave in 2019. Now, understand this. The tithe was the Old Testament standard of giving. The tithe, 10% minimum, was the Old Testament standard of giving. And so you may say, well, the New Testament doesn't really speak to that. 
Well, let me ask you a question, y'all. Certainly, we would not give less based on the cross. We would not give less based on the gospel than what was prescribed in the Old Testament. Surely we, we wouldn't. Does that make sense? Somebody say yes or I'll, I'll say it again maybe. Okay. The tithe is the floor of giving, not the ceiling. The tithe is the floor. It's not the ceiling. So 5% of professing Christians in the United States are at the floor, which means 95% are in the crawl space. They ain't even got up to the floor. Y'all, that's not good. Like, that's not good. And I'm not saying this to lay the hammer down on us. I'm not. My main concern is not our budget. Am I concerned about the budget? Of course I'm concerned about the budget. But it's not my main concern. My concern is our hearts. What does this say about the hearts of people who claim the name of Christ in the United States? What does it say about the hearts? Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6 made it super, super clear. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to know where your heart is? Follow the money. You want to know where your heart is? Look at what you spent money on last month. Everything from a mortgage to payments for this or that, to food, to clothing, to... to and I'm not even saying that those things aren't necessary. I'm not saying that. But entertainment or, or whatever it is, you want to know where your heart is? Follow the money. You want to know where your heart is? Look at your checkbook. Y'all don't even know what a checkbook is probably. Y'all, probably half of us don't even know what a check is. Was this thing that you used to write stuff on and you handed it to somebody. It was a check. You want to know where your heart is? Follow that. So when I look at those, the numbers, I worry about our hearts. Like genuine, authentic worry about our hearts. But then I get fired up when I think about what would happen if. Like what would happen if everybody gave at least 10% of their income. And I'm not talking about just our church. I'm talking about Christianity across the country. What would happen if every professing Christian gave 10%? You know what research tells us? If every professing Christian gave 10%, that in two years, global starvation and malnutrition would not exist. That every single child on the planet would be educated. That there would be universal access to sanitation and to clean water. If everybody tithed that said they were a Christian, it would solve all of that. Not to mention now, those are physical needs, right? Not to mention what effect would the church have by doing that on the spiritual lives of the two billion people on the planet that have never heard the gospel? What effect would on the unreached people groups, what effect would that have on that? You know, there's about 2 billion people that have never heard the gospel, the gospel that you and I know, that you and I love, that you and I celebrate. We know, and that's kind of just it. Like, we know the realities. We talk about it all the time. We know what the Word, we know, we know what this book says. We know that the world is desperately in need of Jesus. We know. But then there's this disconnect. Like, we know the needs of the world. We know what the Word says we talk about it all the time. So it's not that we don't know because we, we do know. So where's that disconnect? Where does it come from? What is going on in our hearts? And to be clear, very clear, 
This is not this unique, church on the trail is this, not this unique place where, that, where this is an issue. It's, it's, a, it's a, I was going to say it's a global issue, but it's at least a national issue. I believe it would be a global issue. And so I have racked my brain trying to think about what it is, like why is it that, that we know, why, why is the disconnect there? We know the word, we know the needs of the world, but what is it? Is it just that we have all in our culture bought into the lie that whatever our salary is, $500,000 a year, somebody has a salary, 500000 is it that we bought into this lie that whatever the salary is, that's the level at which we should live? If it's 50000 or if it's 500000 we should live that way. And what that does is, is it creates no margin in anybody's lives. Lord knows, man, we, we, you know, there's no doubt that, that many, many, many folks are living way beyond their means. Put me and Susan in the front of the line for years and years and years. That's the way that we live, right up to the edge. We personally have been trying and trying over the last five years or so to, to change and to change that and to live beyond, uh, b- way below our means. Why? So that we can give more. Not so that we can hoard more, so that we can give more. Many, many people live way, way, way above their heads and it creates a lack of margin. And so I'm not sharing any of this to try to beat you into saying everybody in the room needs to give an extra $10. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a need to change, to make change, to change our lives, to change our lifestyles. Families need to change in a way that looks very different from the culture that we live in. That's a super important point. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the longest, biggest block of instruction that comes out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospels, the whole sermon is about if you are a Christian, you should not look like the world. That doesn't mean you should look like a freak. You should not look like the world. You should act different than the world. You should look different than the world. You should give differently than the world. You should serve different from the world. And so those are changes that we need to make. It needs to change our lifestyles maybe. need to change for what it is that we're all united together to do, to be part of, and that is to spread the gospel in a lost and dying world and provide for the physical and the spiritual needs of those people. That's what we rally together to do. And sometimes lifestyles got to change to facilitate that. And it's not even just for that. It needs to also change for our own sake. Look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Excuse me, yeah, starting in verse 9. Paul writes this, and these, there's going to be some hard stuff today, so let me just throw that out as a caveat too. Paul says in verse 9, and he's writing to this church in Corinth, and he says, I wrote to you in my letter, so he's talking about a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. In context, he's talking about a guy who had um, been sleeping with his, with his father's wife. And so there's a sexual immorality, there's a sexual sin thing going on, and there's a little bit of a church discipline thing going on. And so he, Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, living in unrepentant sexual sin, unrepentant habitual sexual sin. We're not talking about somebody that just made a mistake. I'm not 
not sure how you made that kind of mistake. We're just not talking about somebody that just committed a sin. We're talking about a lifestyle of sexual sin. So he says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. What does that mean? I'm writing to you anybody that says I'm a Christ follower. That's what he's saying. He's saying don't associate with the person that says I'm a Christ follower and their entire life is a life of habitual, unrepentant sin. In this case, he says, if he's guilty of sexual immorality. But then he says, or greed. And he throws some other stuff in there. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 6, a chapter later. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, in context, it's, it's a lifestyle of unrighteousness that Paul's talking about. Okay? It's a lifestyle of unrighteousness. And then he describes what that unrighteousness looks like. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, blah, blah, blah. None of them who are living in that lifestyle are going to inherit the kingdom of God. He puts greed on the same level the same playing field as sexual immorality and all these other things. Do we as a people do that? Nod, no, we don't. We grade sin. We have a hierarchy. And as long as my sin's not quite as bad as Lonnie's, then I'm good. If I can run just a little bit faster than him when the lion's chasing me, I'm golden. That's what we do. Now, this is a serious thing, y'all. He says the greedy... The habitually, just got to understand the tense of the words, the habitually greedy, the people who are living a lifestyle of greed will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, why is that? And you may even say, well, I'm not greedy. Now, remember, the scripture paints this image, this diverse image of greed, and yes, we're talking about covetousness. It's wanting what others have. I want this, I want that. I want nicer and better. And the culture is screaming and beating you up all day long. You deserve nicer and better. You deserve that car. You deserve that trip to Paris. The world is screaming that at you all the time. And I see what they want and I want me some of that. Y'all, it, it happens and we really don't even realize that, that it's happening. But it happens. But it's not just covetousness. It's possessiveness as well. It's hoarding what we do have, greed. It's storing up more and more stuff for ourselves. The Bible says right there, you live that lifestyle of greed, unrepentant, habitual greed, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Tough stuff, tough words. And I'm like, God, help us not to be guilty, hear these words, of selective moral outrage. Lord, don't let us cherry pick the things that we'll be outraged about. Let the Bible speak what the Bible says. Don't let us be guilty of selective moral outrage. Because what that would mean is we point the finger at homosexuality in our culture while indulging in greed all across the church as if that's okay. It's what I just said. As long as my sin's not as bad as the next guy's. You know, as a church, and I'm talking about the church, we will jump all over somebody for 
unrepentant, habitual sexual immorality? Are we going to jump all over somebody for unrepentant, habitual greed? The scriptures would, or are we? Right, do we get that? Do we get it? You say, maybe, in the same way that it's not possible, these are going to be hard words, y'all, that it's not possible to be a Christ follower and live continuously in unrepentant sexual immorality. Is it impossible to be a Christ follower and live in continual unrepentant shaking your fist at God greed? It's not possible. The scripture would say there comes a point where it's clear that you're actually not part of the church. That's what the scripture would say. Because you cannot continue on in unrepentant, shaking your fist at God, defiant sin. It doesn't work that way. It cheapens the cross. Dramatically cheapens the cross. It's what Jesus said to the rich young man. He said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do we realize that? I think we need to hear that. We don't think of ourselves as rich. Look at the rest of the world, y'all. The poorest one of us in this room is loaded, like loaded compared to the rest of the world. We are wealthy. And in our culture, it's hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. We gotta hear what the word of God says and change accordingly. We need the Holy Spirit to do a work and change our hearts. So 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, I want to share a section of chapter 8 today and a section of chapter 9 next week, and I want us to see what God will do with our hearts. This is all about our hearts. I want to see what God will do with that. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Y'all listen to what Paul writes. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. They gave according to their means, as he can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Begging, think about it begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus uh, that as he has started, so he should complete among you, he's talking about the folks in Corinth, this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love, for you see that you excel in this act of grace also. And Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. The pinnacles, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So next week I'm going to dive into chapter 9, verse 6 through 15. Write that down. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. I want you all to read that this week. Today I'm not. We're going to look at this passage in chapter 8. What a beautiful passage this is. 
beautiful passage of an example that Paul uses of the Macedonian church given like this. And we know from 2 Corinthians that Paul is talking um, about an offering uh, for the church in Jerusalem that is suffering greatly in famine. So he's taking up this offering uh, across that area for the church to take and give to the church in Jerusalem. So he's urging, he had even urged the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians to regularly um, take up an offering for Jerusalem, for the church in Jerusalem. But apparently they had not done what he said. They had not, they had not listened to him. They had not been obedient. They had not taken up, they weren't regularly taken up an offering for that church in Jerusalem that was suffering. So Paul writes in this other letter, let me tell you what the other folks are doing. Mr. and Mrs. Corinthian people. Let me tell you what the other folks are doing. And he uses this example of the Macedonian church and he urges them to give. So I want us today to hear what God said to them and what he may be saying to me and you. Number one is this. We give and we should give out of an abundance of grace. Out of an abundance of grace. Verse one. Just look on the screen, y'all. Verse one. The grace of God. It's about the grace of God. Verse six talks about the acts, the act of what? The act of grace. Verse 7, he says, excel in this grace. Verse 9, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all, I want us to understand, like really understand, that this is, a, this is about grace. It is not about guilt. It is about grace, not guilt. People have been guilting people into stuff for far too long. And you know what? Guilt is not a sustainable motivator for giving. I could stand here probably, I bet, and I could guilt everybody in here to write in a check if you had a checkbook. I could guilt you into that probably. That is not a sustainable motivator for generosity and giving. It's a fleeting thing. And so it's not about guilt, it's about grace. Now, we do need to realize, though, all of us probably, that it's super easy to get selfish, very easy to get selfish. Our hearts are in our money more than we'd probably like to admit. Our hearts are in our stuff probably more than we would like to admit. Our hearts are probably in our pleasures and our pursuits and our possessions way more than we'd like to admit. And I'm saying to you this morning, realize how much God loves you. Realize how, how much he wants to shower us with grace. Think about it. If you've never bathed in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are missing out on the joy that is unexplainable. And that's what he wants for us this morning. He's gracious towards you. So giving, it shouldn't pour out of a place of guilt. It should pour out of this, this because of his grace. The giving should pour out of us. His grace does something that is, that is absolutely supernatural in us. And so we're talking about something this morning that, um, that would cause us to live in a way that's very different from the entire culture that's around us and that's the example Paul gives of the church in Macedonia. The folks in that church that he's talking about, the Macedonian church, they're living in extreme poverty. They're taking up money for a church in famine when they themselves are living in famine and squalor. Think about that. Look at what the word says in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Look at the equation. This is the math in 2 Corinthians. It's up there on the top. If you can read my chicken scratch, affliction, affliction plus poverty, and not just any poverty, extreme poverty, 
Those two added together equal joy and generosity. Like what kind of nonsense is that? Does that make any sense to any of y'all? That affliction and extreme poverty would equal joy and generosity. It doesn't add up. It makes no sense. It's not natural. Duh. Duh. It's not natural. There's something supernatural that is at work. It would not be natural for any of us to be beaten up, be in affliction, living in squalor, and jump up and just be joyful and generous. It's a supernatural thing. And you know, that is why I feel always, and I hadn't preached about money, giving, generosity in a long time. And, And part of the reason why is because I feel so consistently inadequate in doing that. Totally inadequate in talking about giving because I know that I know that I know that there is nothing that I can do or say that would cause somebody's heart to change. That is not, that's not on me. That's God's business. You know how to spell that? B-I-D-N-E-S-S. Somebody hashtag God's business. That's not Ed's business. That's God's business. He changes hearts. Y'all, that's the whole point of verse 1 because we know that in verse 1, the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, that is my prayer for all of us today. That is my prayer for our church, that he would show grace upon our church, that he would shower our church with grace and not judgment, that he would not show judgment upon our church. Because you know what happens with, with judgment? How does that work? He would give, give us over to ourselves. That's judgment. My prayer is, Lord, do not give us over to ourselves. Lord, don't give me over to myself. Lord, be gracious to us. Be merciful to us and and let us understand how desperately we need his grace in all of this. So we give out of an abundance of grace and not guilt. And if you are getting up in your ear this guilt thing, it ain't God. It's the devil getting up in your ear with the guilt thing. So we give out of an abundance of grace, number one. Number two, we give willingly. Verse 4, look at verse 4, it's crazy. They're begging for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They're begging to give. They're like, I can't wait, wait to wake up tomorrow morning, I get to write a check. Like that's, they're begging to give because they have been given so much by the Lord. Clearly not materially, they're living in squalor. But they get, they've got their arms around somehow the, the overflowing grace that has been shown in their lives. That's the image. We give based on that grace and the, and the blessing that has nothing to do with money. That has nothing to do with material things. And then we give at least according to our ability. Look at verse 3. They, get, they gave according to their means, Paul says, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord beyond their means. Like that's the heart here in 2 Corinthians. That's the heart behind giving. Look at Mark chapter 12. Beautiful passage in Mark 12 starting in verse 41. This is giving and generosity through the eyes of your Savior. This is how Jesus perceives giving. This is how he values a gift. Follow me, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury. Who's he? He is Jesus. 
Where is he? He's in the temple complex, and he's sitting down, and he's watching what's going on. Jesus was a people watcher, y'all. He's sitting there, and he's watching folks. And so the text says he sat down opposite the treasure, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. You know how the rich people came into the temple complex to give? Literally with trumpets blowing. Like, are you kidding me? But they did. With trumpets blowing, the rich people come in and they throw their whatever, big money in the, in, in the offering box. And Jesus says, many rich people put in large sums. Isn't that awesome? They put large sums in the offering box. Jesus said, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. They're called a mite, which make a penny. And he called his disciple. Jesus is like, did y'all see that? Did y'all see what just happened? Like, he, so he says, Truly I, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see how he values a gift? Not according to the monetary value, this gross size of the gift, but, but according to its how would we word it? It's comparison percentage of that which was given. Out of all she had out of her poverty, she gave all. And those people that gave large sums, they weren't making no sacrifice. Here's a truism. Sacrifice is not sacrifice if there ain't no sacrifice. Does that make sense? The very nature of sacrifice means there has to be a sacrifice. Y'all, the whole New Testament is this huge, beautiful display of sacrificial love. Do you think that there was no sacrifice on that cross? It's all about the whole model of love in the New Testament is sacrificial love. If you have a child, you kind of can get your arms around sacrificial love. When my dad used to say to me, I'd jump in front of a train for you, I'm like blah, 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 until my son was born and I would jump in front of a train for him. Until I married my wife, I would die for her in a second. He died for all of us, y'all. So sacrifice is not a sacrifice if there ain't no sacrifice. Look at Acts chapter 2. You have the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2, the first believers. Thousands of people come to Christ. Peter preaches a sermon uh, in Acts chapter 2. You have thousands of people come to Christ, and what do they do? And they're given. And they did. it wasn't this, once I mature... I'm give. Once I go to a bunch of different Bible studies, once I, um, I got to go to seminary and I got to mature myself. No, that's not the image in Acts 2. It's immediate. They're given. Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, he comes face to face with Christ and he says, half my possessions I give away. And Jesus says, clearly today salvation has come to this house. It's automatic. It's an immediate something that happens it's not something you grow into. It's something that ought to happen immediately. That's the image painted here of one of the fruits of an initial relationship with Christ. These people get saved, and what are they doing? Look at Acts chapter 2 in verse 44. The text says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings. They're selling what they got. They're putting what they got on marketplace and they're getting stuff for it. And they're distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, the Bible says. They just immediately start selling and giving stuff away. This is the grace of God stirring up something in them 
to that kind of giving. And the Bible says, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This is the church. Are we the church? Look at what the Bible says in Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. What, what, what are they saying? What, what's the testimony they're giving? Here's the testimony they're given. We saw a dead guy go into a tomb and run out alive. That's the testimony that they're given. Y'all, if you're a Christ follower, you got that testimony. A dead guy went in the tomb and he ran out alive. That's what verse 33 is saying. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great what was upon all of them. Great grace was upon them. What does that great grace provoke here? The very next words, there was not a needy person among them. That means there was not one person in need among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought all the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. They sold it on marketplace and they laid it at the apostles' feet. They trusted the apostles. Nobody's laughed at the marketplace comment twice yet, although I think I saw a smile over there. But it was distributed as each had need. That's what the Bible says. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the, apostle, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Do you see this? I mean, they're selling lands and they're selling houses and they're selling their stuff and they're bringing it all into the church and they're saying, give to those in need. Take care of the people. Do the Lord's work with the proceeds from what we have sold. And we, I bet this is true, and if it ain't happening to you right now, it's happened to you before. We read Acts chapter 4, part of chapter 2, we read Acts chapter 4, and we're like, is this socialism? Like, is, is, is the Bible teaching us to be socialists? Are we supposed to go to South America or Europe somewhere where there's a socialist world? Is that what the Bible is saying? And I'm telling you, y'all, if this is the truest thing I've said today, this is not, the Bible does not, absolutely does not paint this picture of communist-driven socialism. It doesn't. It is gospel-driven sacrifice. It's Jesus-focused sacrifice. It's Christ-centric. It is all about Jesus, all all, all about Jesus. It is gospel-driven sacrifice. And it's because you're looking at a people who have been transformed by the grace of God. They have gotten a heart transplant. That's this image you see in Acts. And it makes sense for them to sell their stuff. They don't need their stuff. And they're selling their houses. And don't go out of here and say, Ed said I need to sell my house. It's not what I'm saying. That's between you and God. And you got to look in the mirror and figure it out. But you got to figure out and try to understand, we want God to change our want to. Like our want to her down there by our appendix. Change it. Give me a transplant or something and let me not want the stuff that I want now. Let me, let me want the stuff that's in, that's in line, Lord, with your will. Let me understand the difference between need and want. Y'all come out on the streets with me on a Monday night and I'll show you the difference between need and want, right? So these people, their, their, their lives have been transformed and so they're selling stuff, they're giving stuff to people in need. Well, what does that look like in the world that we live in today? 
Is that the kind of church, y'all, that we are willing to be? Is that the kind of church, our local assembly here, Church on the Trail, is that the kind of church that we want to be, that we're willing to be? And so my prayer is this, Lord, by your grace, by your grace, Lord, give us the desire to be that. Give us the desire to be that kind of a fellowship, that kind of a body, to give not just according, Lord, to our ability, but beyond our ability. Let us be like that. Now I want to try to wrap up today, and we're kind of in the middle of the message, but we could either do that or y'all could stay for another couple hours. I want to wrap this up, package it up, maybe tee up next week as well to kind of tell you a little bit of what we've said today. Number one, this is not as much a money issue as it is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. You want to know where your heart is? Follow your money. Follow that trail of money. And then on this side of the cross, a 10% tithe is the floor, not the ceiling. That we give as Christ followers in response to and out of an abundance of the grace that God has just flowed into us. Not guilt, grace. We as Christ followers, we give willingly. We can't wait. We ought to not be able to, we can't wait to give like the Macedonian church was, just begging to be part of that whole deal. Next week, I said we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15, so we're going to look at what the Bible says about giving generously and cheerfully. We're going to look at what, the, what God says about the way that he provides for me and you. We're going to explore this thought next week that we are not forced by God to give, that we are freed by God to give two radically different ways of looking at giving. And then finally, and this is going to lay on top of everything next week and on top of this week, that we give as a demonstration of the gospel. Because this book is not about giving. It's about Jesus from page one to the end. It is about the gospel. It's not a book of history. Is there history in it? Of course. But it ain't a history book. It's a love story. It's an invitation to you to come into a relationship with the dude that wrote it from page one to the end. Y'all, it is a book whose intent is to lead a lost sinner into a saving relationship with his Lord. And so we're going to look at how giving is a demonstration of that gospel. And it's a gospel of grace. I hope I made that point today. Everything in our lives changes when we get that heart transplant. When the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us and we have a new heart, everything changes, which includes giving. Everything changes. And so I'm going to say to y'all today, if you have never said yes to that offer like Chaz did Monday night on 23rd Street, let today, don't go to sleep tonight. Don't let your head hit the pillow without saying yes. And I can't say yes for you. I can't decide for you. I can't argue you into heaven. You got to do that yourself. But allow God to prick your heart today. Allow him to, 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 to allow you to understand the fullness of the gospel message. And it doesn't take a PhD. It doesn't take a seminary degree. It don't take a high school diploma, y'all. I'm a lost sinner and I need to be saved. That's it. I repent of my sin, I turn away from it, and I turn towards the Lord. 
and I believe that he died on the cross to save me from my sin, Lord, save me, and he will do it. He will do it 100% of the time. I don't care what you've done in your past. When he says the forgiveness as far as the east is from the west, it don't get no further than the east is from the west. So don't come to me with, you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. You can be forgiven. Period. You can be forgiven. Y'all pray with me. Lord, let today be the day that revival begins in Columbus, Georgia. Let today be the day where lost folks just embrace you and, and, and understand the joy that comes from allowing your grace and your mercy to wash their sins away. Let today be the day that lost sinners become saved sinners. Lord, let people just repeat this in their mind. Lord, I repent of my sin. I turn towards you. I believe that you died on the cross to save me. Lord, save me. If you just said that, you went from blind to now you can see. You went from lost to found. Your head's going to hit the pillow tonight and you're going to be a Christian. Secure in your faith and living with Christ for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. If that happened to you, our prayer team is going to be back in that far corner. They would love to pray with you. They would love to talk with you. And if you don't want to go back there, come see me, whatever it is. Talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. I'm going to turn it back over to our worship team.